Hello, and welcome to episode four of Making Sense, a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and I am coming to you over the broadband channels of iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. For those of you joining the simulcast on YouTube, you'll be able to follow along and see the graphs we're referencing, as well as our pretty faces and professional studios that we're broadcasting from. Joining me, as always, is the Baron of the Balance Sheet, the Head of Global Research, the Chief Investment Officer of Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. How are you, Jeff? Good. How are you doing, Emil? Great. Taking, a, the, taking the whole economic crisis and shutdown and stride offshore in the Caymans? Yes, I am. And I'm just going to tell you that everyone here in the Cayman Islands absolutely loses their mind if someone refers to it as Caymans, <laughs> Cayman Islands or okay. Grand Cayman. I know nobody else cares, but I'll tell you, it, it just drives us nuts if someone says Caymans. It's, oh, for everyone in San Fran, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, I won't make that mistake again. So uh, my apologies to anybody who is, who is viewing us from the Cayman Islands or Grand Cayman. We've got a lot to talk about today, I think, um, especially the way the, the markets are trading, stock markets in particular. We've also got a lot of, you know, we want to talk about some of the things that we're working on behind the scenes that, you know, this, this podcast is really only the first part of what we hope to be a much, much broader project called Eurodollar University. What Eurodollar University is going to be, we hope, is, is a, a one-stop place to go to understand, to get reference material, to learn about the jargon, to learn about how all these markets work. Really a, a true uni a university kind of a setting where, you know, you can learn about all of these things that we're going to talk about in current events on the Making Sense podcast and get into the deeper, deeper pieces behind it so that you can understand for yourself and make sense, obviously, of what's going on around us in the world. And and we've got, it's not just Emil and I that are working on the podcast and putting together this Euro Dollar University. We've got a couple of other people who have joined us, really, really smart people, dedicated people who are, you know, terrific resources, who are, are, are helping us put this, this project together. And over the coming, we hope, uh, weeks and months, we'll have a broad range of material that people can go to. If you have a question about, you know, a topic that Emil and I are going to talk about on the, pod, on the podcast, There'll be a place to go on Eurodollar University or someplace where we can show you where you can learn more about this particular topic. So it's not just, you know, throwing you into the deep end and, and making you swim with a bunch of, as you said, balance sheet charts and trying to understand these deep concepts. We'll try to raise those concepts, put them into a current, current sort of format, and then give you the, the, the ability to go in on your own and learn about all of these other things that actually take place and, and why they do. And before we have the website up and other tutorials up, before then, everyone can join us on the YouTube channel and add and, uh, their comments there, as well as on Twitter. So we're both active on Twitter. Jeff's at, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. I'm at Emil Kalinowski, and I am spending a lot of time on the YouTube comments section answering questions. So please pose any questions that you have there for now. Jeff, it's been a couple of weeks since we have last spoke. A lot has happened. You've written at least 12 articles that I'm aware of. Uh, they fall into two kind of categories. One is 
that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, is not providing either the right kind or enough of money and not distributing it, and that it's not getting into the wider economy. And then the second set of articles concerns that wider economy. So let's start there. What have you written recently that's important that's not being covered in the mainstream business press? Well, I think, you know, let's, let's talk about the economy, first of all. I think, and I think that's what a lot of people are really concerned about in terms of, you know, especially when you look at the stock market. I think the narrative that's forming or at least being traded in stocks, if not other places, is that, look, we have this really severe supply side shock, this, this dislocation that's basically a non-economic in nature. And therefore, okay, it's, it's going to be bad in the short run, but once the shutdown's over, once they bend the curve on the virus and the COVID-19 pandemic passes, then everything will just go right back to normal, if not even better than normal. Um, there's, you know, the optimistic case is that it'll even be better when we get to the other side of this. And, and the idea is that, you know, because this is a non-economic in nature, therefore, once it's over, it's over. And I think that's, that's, that's missing a lot of the, the, the details, especially what we, what we consider global financial crisis number two, which, you know, if we look back at global financial crisis number one and how it had long-term impacts on the economy, you start to wonder if, okay, yes, this is non-economic in nature at its basis, but there's more going on than just the shutdown. And when you start to consider that, um, the long run and the intermediate and long-term look a lot different. And I think the most searing and personal, visceral economic account out there is not the unemployment rate or the lost jobs, which is getting a lot of play, but it's the labor force participation and the number of people that are in the labor force. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's well, first of all, 22 million jobless claims, that's, that's gonna get attention. But again, that's the short run. We knew that was gonna happen. They, they shut down the economy for you know, whatever reason, we can litigate that at a later date push comes to shove, it's 22 million people who no longer have jobs. And that's a, that's a huge thing. But we, we expected that. We expected that the short run, especially as it related to the, the, the non-economic consideration, would be like that. But what we don't expect is, you know, as you pointed out, this the participation problem, which is, you look at the labor force throughout history, especially as it relates to recession in the business cycle, um, you know, you never, you never get to the point where people just give up like, like they have. Um, if you go through history, you know, all of these past recessions, even the nasty one in the early 1980s, what you find is that the labor force itself keeps growing. Now, that's what we're talking about, the labor force. If, if, you're, if you're unfortunate enough in a recession to be laid off and you lose your job, you don't really give up looking for work. I mean, you're temporarily dispossessed from the job market, but you never leave the labor force because you're still looking for work. You may not be able to find a job very quickly, but you're at least looking for work. And so throughout recessions, real recessions in the past, what you find is just that. The labor force continues to grow regardless of recession because even if people are laid off, they're at least still looking for work. They don't leave the labor force. They leave the, the jobs market. They're pushed out of the jobs market. So throughout history, that's what you see. Up until we have some great, we have some great graphs that we're showing on the screen right now for our podcast listeners. And the art. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're not on YouTube right now, 
the article that Jeff is referencing is the two easiest dots that anyone will ever have to connect. And Jeff, you are showing the labor force through six, five different periods, recessions. And in each case, it either grew or stayed constant until when? October 2008, which, I mean, anybody who lived through the, the first financial crisis remembers September and October 2008, because that's when, you know, that's when it got really bad. So up until that time, as you pointed out, Emil, throughout economic history, recession was was not a substantial break in the labor market. It was a, it was a pause in employment, sure. It was a temporary deviation from full employment, but it didn't break the labor market in the way that the great global financial crisis in 2008 apparently did. Why did everything change in October 2008? What is it about the participation problem? What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that people who were in the labor market got laid off, but they realized the severity of the situation, the gravity of the financial crisis, and they gave up looking for work entirely. So they weren't just laid off, they jumped out of the labor force completely. First time in modern, modern history that we've seen something like this. And it makes sense on an intuitive level. I mean, when you have companies like McDonald's or Caterpillar going to the Federal Reserve, begging them for commercial paper bailout, you know, too big, too, uh, the burgers too big to fail, you have to understand that. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial change in the way the economy is actually behaving. It's, a, it's an underlying structural change. It makes sense for you and I and whoever's paying attention to the underlying monetary system that we weren't going through a cyclical downturn, but a phase transition. And that's reflected in the labor force in the United States. But it, it's not widely understood in the broader media. We, I, this, I haven't heard anyone talking about the labor force. It's all about the unemployment. It's all presented as cyclical. And, but tell us a little bit more about what you're, you're seeing you're right, with today's you're labor right force. Because- here we have where maybe the media didn't understand what was going on, but the American worker did. Because that's what's, that, these are American workers telling you what their perceptions are at the margins of the economy. And so if we have the American workers, we're talking about millions of them here, so pessimistic about the long run prospects of the economy that they, they tell the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics that they're no longer part of the labor force, that is a key indication that hey, something big is wrong here. And it's not just something big that's wrong over the short run where the labor force would behave like it did in past recessions. This is something big for the long run. And where it really gets scary is when you look at what happened just recently in the month of March with the last labor report. 1.6 million Americans told the BLS that they're, they're out of the labor force in March. They just left, which was almost as many as had, as had left the labor force in all of the first global financial crisis in 2008, 2009. So that's, that's an amazing statistic. And it's one that you just have to shake your head and say, okay, what are the American, what is the American worker telling you here? It's devastating and it's heartbreaking because they've simply given up. There's no hope. There's no return. They say, uh, we don't see anything. Well, not, not in the short term. one, right? There's, there's, okay. Maybe they come back some other day, but you know, what they're telling you is, this is not just a short run thing. This is not just, okay, we're laid off. We expect to be laid off, but we're going to go back to work. Like everybody's thinking that the shutdown's over. Everybody goes back to work. We have at least 1.6 million American workers who are saying, yeah, we don't expect to go back to work anytime soon. And that's an enormous number. 
And looking at uh, the chart on your, uh, in your article, we're talking about absolute numbers here. We could also be talking about labor force as a percentage of the population. But in absolute numbers, we peaked right 2008, October, right? And then we didn't get back. We almost got back in middle of 2010, but that's when we started the first rumblings of that second euro dollar crisis began. And then the labor force didn't fully recover until 2012, and it meandered until 2014. So I would say it took six years, despite a growing population, for the labor force to finally break free of what we had observed in the GFC1, which is the worst name ever, Great Financial Crisis. But let's move on. That's another five minutes. Well, no, you know, it's, 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 a, it's really an important point, I think, that you're raising here, because in some respects, Emil, the labor force has never recovered from it. I mean, that's the participation problem in a nutshell. Um, yeah, the, the, the absolute level finally did grow above where it had peaked in October 2008. But as a percentage of the population, we are nowhere close to where it was in the pre-crisis era, which explains a lot about the lack of economic growth over the last decade. The fact that people have been forced to give up on the jobs market, I mean, not just I mean, say they're no longer looking for jobs, that's an important indication of how bad things were. And oh, by the way, you know, economists really don't have any good answers for this. They come up with something they call our star, you know, which says, well, first they said, well, all the baby boomers got older and they started to retire and that, that's dragged down the, the supply side of the economy. And then as one of our colleagues at Eurodollar University has pointed out, that was debunked a long time ago because people who are baby boomers that are retiring are actually working longer because the economy has been so bad over the last decade. So then they said, well, maybe it wasn't baby boomers. It had to be, uh, it had to have been, you know, former coal miners who are now uh, hooked on fentanyl and, and other sorts of opiates. So, so it's a, they're drug addicted. Americans won't go back to college. They're too lazy. Any kind of, any sort of explanation to, 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 try, to, to try to figure out how the labor force has never recovered from what changed exactly in October of 2008 when, in fact, because it, it changes right in October 2008, it draws our attention to the things that were happening in October 2008, which, you know, if you're a central banker, you really don't want people to remember. So Malfunction uh, of the monetary order that was, under, that was entrusted to you, ostensibly. Right, and so, you know, it, it's a long-run issue, which gets back to our theme here, that we shouldn't expect, especially with a global financial crisis number two erupting in March of 2020, and then the labor force behaving as it is already in the first step of that, it's starting to feel a little bit too similar. And so, you know, it, let's, let's pull back on the idea that this is a short run thing only and start to consider that maybe if these processes are repeating, we've got a long road ahead. So in the first GFC, we, it took about six years by my rough estimate before we finally broke free in absolute number terms. And then as you said, we never actually recovered in as a percentage. Before the crisis began, we were right at 63.5% for labor force participation. And as of the most recent numbers, we were just under 61% or at 61%. So insert... <laughs> It's terrible. Yeah, and but, that doesn't sound like a big difference, but it's enormous. It's absolutely enormous. And that 2% is, it makes a huge, huge difference. And the fact that it happened 
uh, the labor force shrank by 1.6 million in March 2020 alone. That is beyond, I mean, I was expecting nothing like that. That was beyond my most pessimistic scenario, which again is more about the long run than the short run. Well, we, I'm broadcasting from the offshore. You have lots of fans from the offshore. We just focus on the United States. And while it is the largest economy, what about the rest of the world, Jeff? What have you read about and written about that is uh, concerning everyone else? Well, you know, one of the biggest drivers of economic growth globally over the last 20, 30, 40 years, as you know well, Emil, because you've done a lot of work on this too, is globalization. And globalization means global trade. And so it, it, I think it makes sense to look at global trade and how that might be impacted by what's going on in global financial crisis number two in the, shut, the economic shutdown, because obviously the shutdown is not just impacting the U.S., it's, it's pretty much worldwide. And so the, the uh, WTO, the World Trade Organization, has put out its first run of estimates for what we should expect, or at least, you know, try to understand the range of possibilities for global trade over the next intermediate period, short run intermediate period. And they produced a, a nice handy chart for us that shows on the green line what they would consider their most optimistic scenario. And then the red line, which you can see here on the, on the screen, which is their pessimistic scenario. And we're talking, about, we're talking about your article, The Real Diseased Body. And by the way, all these articles can be found at Alhambra Investments. And the green and red line represent global trade volumes. And they're indexed. They're indexed. Right. So, you know, what the WTO is saying is exactly what we're, we're talking about. The, the, you know, for the short run, for 2020, the, this year is shot. We're going to have a collapse in global trade, the likes of which we haven't seen. But we knew that. Again, like the jobless claims in the U.S., we knew the short one was going to be messy. Our concern, our main concern is what follows from it. If we get something like the green line that we're seeing here, uh, that's to me, that's, that's still pretty bad because, you know, it, it's not where it should be up here, which is the trend line before 2008 that was broken 12 years ago. So, you know, even in the best case scenario, this green line, we get back to the to the post-crisis trend, which was which was pretty troubling and concerning as it is. But then you have to consider, wait a minute, we already have an example of how this goes with the financial crisis right here in 2008 and 2009. It was a severe break in trend, a paradigm shift. And so what they call this red line as their pessimistic scenario, we've already seen it happen in history along the very same lines as we see what's transpiring right now. So it's another indication that we're even, you know, the World Trade Organization, which is, a, which, is a, which is an organization staffed with all sorts of conventional economists running all sorts of conventional economic, econometric models, their most optimistic case is that we kind of get back to normal by 2022. And their pessimistic case is something that we've already observed in history, in recent history. And so, you know, again, we start to look, we start to think, okay, short one really bad, but the bad news might really be what comes after it. And let me share something from my screen, which is from the, uh, from the World Bank. And it's similar to what you were showing, except that it is denominated as a percentage of global GDP. And this goes all the way back to the beginning of the last century. But it, you were saying that we hadn't quite seen something, or at least that they hadn't seen something quite as dramatic, but we had seen something as dramatic just a few years ago. There was a big dip 
but not a full recovery, right? And never reacquired that pre-trend, which you were just saying. And now, and I, I threw in some estimates based on what the World Trade Organization was estimating, as well as the IMF for global GDP, as to where we're going for 2020. And I think it, go, it undoes basically the last 20 years. It'll send us back to levels, uh, trade as a percentage of global GDP back to where we were at the beginning of 2000. And, and it all, as you said, it all assumes that things will go well, that there's no second economic con- wave of contagion. There's no second viral con- uh, wave of contagion. And we can, we can forget about reacquiring those pre-event trends. I, in my opinion, I think we're, we'd be just happy to get back to, uh, even, which of course is a loss in itself. It's a nonlinear loss, which you talk about very often in your work. Yeah. And that, you know, Emil, that's the big thing, right? I mean, we're, we're counting on central bank and fiscal quote unquote stimulus just to get back to even. And, you know, common sense, why, why would we, why would anybody in their right mind count on stimulus when we've seen time and time and time again, where it doesn't work? We have the historical record. We have it empirically established. QE doesn't work. We've got mountains of evidence that none of this stuff works. So why would anybody count on stimulus being the agent that puts us back to even? Because there's no reason to expect that. And when you start to understand that it was stimulus that failed in 2008 and 2009, and that's why we ended up with that L-shaped recovery rather than a V, then you start to think about 2020 and 2021 very, very differently. If the IMF or the WTO, they want to count on the Fed and the ECB and everybody else for their stimulus so that they can draw optimistic green lines, fine. But that's nothing more than artwork. It's not analysis. Analysis is, look, we've been through this before, and it didn't turn out that well. And especially when you consider how the American worker, and that's not just the American worker, but American workers are already saying, we've seen this before too. It doesn't really go smoothly and perfectly and flawlessly. Well, part of the purpose of this show and this effort is to introduce that idea to people that just because there's an announcement that somebody will be creating billions and trillions of something called reserves or dollars of some sort doesn't mean it actually filters out into the rest of the economy. First of all, is it the right kind of money? Is it enough money? And then who's going to redistribute it? Now, in the mainstream media, stimulus is still equated to actual improving economic activity. But starting in 2011, markets of various kinds, perhaps most, uh, most importantly, commodity markets stopped believing that stimulus was going to translate into economic activity. And perhaps the most important of all of those commodity markets is the oil market. What are you seeing in oil markets? Are they believing that stimulus will lead to economic activity. Yeah, you're right, Emil, because first of all, oil is, is not only is it a vital commodity for the, the economy, but in terms of the marketplace, it's the intersection of very real factors. You know, the stock market is, for me, it's, it's almost like entertainment purposes. It, it doesn't have a whole lot of connection to what's really going on in the economy. But WTI futures, oil futures, crude oil trading, that kind of thing, 
that you know there's physical stuff being moved around it's 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 pulled out of the ground it's shipped it's pipelined it's stored in tanks it's you know all sorts of stuff it's used in the real economy so it tells us something very important about the fundamental level of what's going on in the economic system not just the US but global economic system no by the way since all of that you know shipping and moving and producing is financed it also has a heavy element of dollars involved in it too. So we really got, we got fundamental supply, we've got fundamental demand, we've got liquidity, we've got dollars, and everything piled into the oil market. What the oil market is saying right now is exactly what we've been talking about from the beginning. Yes, the short run is gonna be really, really bad. You, you look at the, the WTI futures curve, which is traded in, in, in uh, futures, um, buying and selling of oil today versus spot versus uh, future contracts, and you look at the curve, it looks just like the, any other the financial curve throughout GFC2 where it collapsed because, you know, demand collapsed because dollars became hard to find because we looked out into the future and saw that, you know, demand was in, wasn't going to be as robust as everyone thought. What that Jeff, did in terms I'm, of Jeff, because these charts are very important, and there's, but there's a lot happening. So I'm going to jump in and ask you some questions. And first of all, for anyone that is not on YouTube, you can see the article, A Crude Future View from the Crude Curve. So first of all, most people, when they think about oil, they think of one price, today's price. But actually, as you're saying, there's futures. So there's price of oil for today, and then months and years out into the future. And each of those have something very important to tell us. And so the graph that you're pointing at right now, the first line there is February the 20th. So let's say pre-virus, except for Eric Townsend, he was on it February 8th. So all acknowledgement, but let's hear the rest of the world. They were a little behind it. And what was that curve saying? It was up over 50. And what was this saying? Well, what's important to me is the curve shape, especially for a commodity market. It's different from gold and something, a commodity like oil, which is a usable commodity. What this curve shape here, here is on February 20th, it's called backwardation, mostly backwardation, which says, you know, it's, it's much more economical to use up the commodity than it is to store it because the future price is lower than the current, current prices, either the current future months or the spot price. You're right. I think most people, most people think of oil as the spot price and that's, that's all there is to it. But there's a lot more going on than just, you know, what, what's going on for, for trading today. So over I'm sorry, Jeff. So somebody, a producer, you've got oil, you come to the market and the market's saying, I'll give you $55 for it right now, February 20th. And then if you want to, you can keep it for a couple of years, but I'll only give you $50 then. Meaning I, the market, I want that oil right now. I will pay you 55 right now versus 50 sometime in the future. Right. So the incentive is to use it today rather than store it, which is what we want in a, in a commodity market that's a highly, highly usable product or highly usable commodity. But you can see how that changed. You know, February 20th was right about where this GFC2 started. And it's, it really started, you know, really started to see how serious it became in the oil market and the WTI futures curve. So by early March, March 6th, which, which was just before the, uh, the big oil plunge on March 9th, the curve had already shifted into what's called contango. Now contango is where the current prices or, or the near-term prices are lower than the future prices because what's happening is people who have oil now, whether it be producers or short-term speculators, 
can't sell it, you can't sell enough of it immediately. And therefore they're creating the incentive for people to buy it from them and store it into the, to the, to the future. And that happens with higher futures prices up and down the curve. So there's too much supply relative to demand. We know why the demand plunged and the economy is saying, listen, keep that oil. Uh, don't bring it here. I'll give you more money the longer you keep it out of the market. Right. We can't use it today. It's got to go in the storage, but you have to have some incentive to take it off my hand and put it someplace. So here's a higher future price so that you can sell in the future at a higher price. And so as the global financial crisis developed, the economic shutdown, all these non-economic factors, that's what you saw. The curve collapsed, especially at the front end. This contango at the front end of the curve has gotten, has grown enormously steep, which is what we've been talking about this whole time. That's the short run picture that, hey, demand for oil is going to be so low that, you know, the price has to be discounted this far. But after a couple months, we expect that things were going to start to go back to normal. That's why the contango is so steep in these front month prices. So by the summertime, the market is saying we should be back closer to normal. Well, at least closer to you know, getting past this non-economic shutdown. There's a lot of normal because there's a lot of uncertainty in the front, and that's reflected both on the virus and in the economic activity. And so that's why it's so cheap. It's so cheap. If you've got oil, nobody, I'll give you a few nickels for it. Not really, $20, but I, you know, we don't want it. We don't know if we can sell this stuff. Later in the future, okay, it's, we feel like it's going to be improving somewhat, but, and I think this is your important point, not that much. Yeah, that's the thing. You know, we, once we get past what the oil market is saying is once we get past this initial disruption, this dislocation, what we're going to is a situation where for the next couple of years, we should see oil in the 30s. And, you know, that's that's not a good price. That's not a good reflection of economic fundamentals in any any place, not just the U.S. I mean, across the entire global global marketplace. It reflects the pessimistic scenario that we just talked about with the WTO. It reflects what we're seeing in the labor market with Americans leaving the labor force. It's a very negative uh, uh, reflection or ne negative assessment of the intermediate and therefore long run uh, fundamentals. And oh, by the way, as you know, I know you know this, Emil, um, that also takes into account the uh, oil production cuts that have been announced, plus ones that are probably going to be announced. Um, the very like very high likelihood that they're going to be bankruptcies in the shale space. So, I mean, all of those things are already being factored into the oil curve and it's actually coming up to where this part of this important part of the curve past the initial short run dislocation is telling us very bad things. So that can you scroll down a little bit? The next graph below is really summarize everything It shows where we were at the beginning of the year and how the market was welcoming oil at $60. Please bring it to the market. The longer you keep it, the less we're gonna pay for it. We have real economic activity. And now the short run is chaos, which is fine. You know, we understand. Right. And that's, that's what you hear about in the mainstream press. The most important part, the part that you're trying to convey to us, Jeff, as you were with the labor force, is as you were with the WTO long-term forecast relative to trend is the, the lack of rec economic recovery. And that's what the long-term 
uh, curve is showing us, just like with interest rates, right? Actual economic activity. The oil market, one of the deepest markets in the commodities, the deepest commodity market, and one of the deepest markets in all of the world, not very enthusiastic, disagreeing with the stock market. Yeah, and it's not, you're right to point out, it's not just the oil market. The oil market's just where it begins. I mean, you look at the yield curve, the yield curve has collapsed too. I mean, you know, long run bond yields or your treasury bond yields are right back to near record lows again. You have treasury bill yields that are falling, uh, falling again, which indicates, as, we, as you well know, uh, collateral shortage at the front end. So, I mean, there are indications here. We'll show you the, uh, you know, the dollar going up still. Um, Foreigners still selling U.S. Treasuries, which is you know an enormously negative sign. Um, you know, here we have the government selling all sorts of Treasury bills, you know, building up its fiscal war chest to pay people to, to for who aren't working. Um, and yet, you know, bill yields are falling again. Um, the Treasury curve is like the oil curve, telling us the long run or the intermediate and long term are not going to be right back to normal, or not, not even. I mean, normal. Forget normal. Not even right back to where we were in 2019 when we forget you know 2019 was not a good year in the economy it was not a good year for anybody especially uh, outside the united states so we have markets that are saying outside of stocks markets that are saying this is not a short run issue and oh by the way we've seen this all before i'm not why <laughs> That's too bad, Jeff. I don't know. I mean, what can we say? It's, uh, it's sobering. And the only silver lining is that hopefully this will draw attention to the real underlying fundamental problems that this whole, our, our, our uh, program here is trying to draw attention to. Hopefully enough people will uh, focus on that the events and the activities of the central bank are not really fixing anything and that there's deeper troubles underneath. That's the only silver lining I can find. It's quite sobering. Uh, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, but you know, again, like our goal here isn't to, you know, we're not judging, we're not putting a spin on anything. We just want to give people information. And really the whole point of behind Eurodollar University project is to give people a framework to understand these things for themselves. You know, so that you're not dependent upon, you know, Jake Powell telling you this or that. It never comes to fruition or you don't have to worry about, you know, what is CNBC going to say today or whatever financial media article that says, you know, QE is stimulus. Well, OK, if you think QE is stimulus, how do you evaluate that that proposition? And that's what we want to tell people is there are definitely there are easy, not, not easy, but there are definite observable ways that we can we can um, analyze and understand all of these things that are happening so that you're better prepared to, un to really figure out and understand where we are in, in all of these things. Jeff, thank you for your time. And I will see you again next week. All right. Take care, Emil. Bye.